Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a vision for you big book study. My name is Leah, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Wednesday, January 23rd, 2013. Today we're reading from the big book. You'll find us in Chapter 8, Two Wives, page 106, at the first small paragraph on that page. Today's readers are Judy B., Sharon, Michelle, Carol P., and Kim. The share code for yesterday's meeting, Tuesday, January 22nd, 3734. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. This meeting's primary purpose is to abstain, to recover from compulsive overeating, and to carry this message of recovery to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now call on Rose to read the 12 steps. Good morning. This is Rose, a grateful compulsive overeater. One, we admitted we were powerless over food that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation, to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles 
in all our affairs. Thank you, and I pass. I will now call on Margaret Kay to read the 12 Traditions. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, Bishop, for you. This is Margaret in New Jersey. Number one, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters it's affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has, has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name would never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relation policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you, Anna Kia. Thank you. Our meeting work. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass. Then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. And today we resume our study of the big book. We are in Chapter 8. Two Wives on page 106 at the very first paragraph on the page, and I will ask Judy B. to begin. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, everyone. This is Judy B., grateful, compulsive, uh, recovered, compulsive overeater. Sometimes there were other women. How heartbreaking was this discovery. How cruel to be told they understood our men as we did not. The bill collectors, the sheriffs, the angry taxi drivers, the policemen, the bums, the pals, and even the ladies they sometimes brought home. Our husbands thought we were so inhospitable. Joy killer, nag, wet blanket, that's what they said. Next day they would be themselves again, and we would forgive and try to forget. And these paragraphs just uh, bring out for me the um, 
the range of behavior that um, an alcoholic or compulsive overeater displays. I mean, our spouses cannot know when we're into the uh, substance abuse what we're going to be like. You know, we're we're unpredictable, we're undependable, and I know in my case a lot depended on whether I was eating or not eating. I mean, there would be weeks when I was not eating and I would act one way, and then when I was into the food, you know, the whole world was upside down. I would change. And um, so this just reminds me of, of how how unpredictable, how undependable um, I was as a compulsive overeater and that it was not easy for my family to be around that. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Judy. Would anyone like to comment on what was read? Star one to unmute. This is Helena. May I share? Of course, Helena. Go ahead. Um, What I'm struck by in this paragraph, if I put myself in the shoes of the husband, not of the wife, is the level of denial and the level of selfishness. The big book tells me that selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of my trouble, and yet I always had a good reason why I had to pick up my substance. And when I picked up my substance, I was truly unpredictable. And I was unpredictable before, too, because I had no idea how to handle life. And uh, I do think how important it is that we do as the big book says and look only at ourselves because of myself, I can always find a reason why someone else is wrong. But the level of denial shown right here, you know, me, I'm the alcoholic. I'm the one that thinks it's some other problem. It's not me. It's not me. It's not me. It's not me. And everybody else is the joy killer. I didn't want to hear it. This is also important for me to remember when I'm reaching out to someone else. Until I was ready, there was no getting through to me. Once I was ready, I'm grateful to say I was able to accept with gladness the fact that I can get rid of my selfishness and self-centeredness, which is the root of my trouble. Pass. Thank you, Helena. Anyone else like to comment on what was read? This is Patricia Mash here. Go ahead. I hate to admit this, but um, I this is what I thought of my husband, of being a joy killer, a wet blanket, and stuff, and not realizing now in my recovery that I did that. You know, because he just, he stood back and didn't know what to expect from me. You know, so I thought, oh, you, you just don't want to have fun, you know? And the truth was was that it wasn't that he didn't want to have fun because now that I'm in recovery and I see him coming out of his shell, um, that he was waiting for me. He was waiting to see what I, how I was going to behave, you know? Anyway, thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Patricia. Anyone else? This is Paula Mashia. Paula, your turn. Thank you. It be Paula, Recovered Compulsible Reader. You know, it doesn't leave out much, does it? You know, in this life that we only are hurting ourselves, or, and there's the wife here and now the child, but wait, wait. 
the bill collectors, the sheriff, the angry tax driver, the policemen, the bums, the pals. Do you notice that, the pals? Yeah, even our friends. And even the, even the ladies, they sometimes write home, our husbands thought we were so inhospitable. Don! And when it said, again, it is a killer of joy, this life we live, this life we live, there can be no joy here. But yet it goes on. The next day they would be themselves again, and there you go. There you go. Well, it's all done now. It's all done now. And this is the path that we led. Talk about the tornado going through. Leaves nothing out. Doesn't say, well, not that one. Not that one. We'll leave that one out. Touches everything around it, surrounds it. That's this disease. There is the infected and there is the affected. And here it goes on to describe totally and completely. Thus we know. Thus we know. Clearly. Thank you for allowing me to share. And with that, I do pass. Thank you, Paula. I'm Leah. I'll comment on this paragraph as well. It says the bill collectors, the sheriffs, the angry taxi drivers, etc. Um, you know, these are the consequences of the madness of alcoholism. Uh, these are the results. You know, we talk about the results of recovery. This confusion that we read about in this paragraph are the results of disease. I often say an analogy is, you know, our disease is much like those old-fashioned pinball machines where you pull back the spring and that metal ball catapults itself across the machinery, you know, banging against the bumpers and the lights are flashing and, you know, the bells are ringing, ding, 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 and that's how we are. You know, we just kind of roar our way through people's lives. Uh, doing what we want to do, when we want to do it, however we want to do it, and we don't realize the, uh, you know, the consequences. And uh, frankly, often we don't care. You know, so the bill collectors, the sheriffs, the angry taxi drivers, these are, uh, you know, characters that spouses and loved ones have to deal with because of our behavior. Of course, at the bottom of the paragraph, it says next day they would be themselves again and we would forgive and try to forget. You know, people are just trying to live their life. These spouses are trying to do the best they can do while walking through the landmine of disease. Walking through the landmine of disease. It is a vicious merry-go-round for spouses and loved ones. They don't know who they're going to wake up to the next morning. Is it going to be Dr. Jekyll or is it going to be Mr. Hyde? You know, because we're always singing the same song, come here, go away, come here, go away. You know, so there is complete lack of stability, complete unpredictability, and inconsistency. And that's the world that we bring when we live in disease. To our loved ones, to our spouses, to our parents, our siblings, our children, our colleagues, our bosses, the list goes on and on. And with that, I pass. Anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? I'll take that as a no and ask Sharon to read the next paragraph, please. 
Good morning. This is Sharon. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Very grateful to be on the line with you this morning. We have tried to hold the love of our children for their father. We have told small tots that father was sick, which was much nearer the truth than we realized. They struck the children, kicked out door panels, smashed treasured cockery, and ripped the keys out of pianos. In the midst of such pandemonium, they may have rushed out, threatening to live with the other woman forever. In desperation, we have even got tight ourselves, the drunk to end all drunks. The unexpected result was that our husbands seemed to like it. Now, this is really, really interesting here when I read this because my first thought is, my gosh, how could you stay with that craziness? Get out, leave. And then I realized, well, wait a minute. This is the alcohol. This is the wife of the alcoholic. So my husband is the one that had to put up with all of this because I was the crazy in this story. I was the one that was doing crazy things and so dysfunctional and caught up in the food and stop the car, pull over, I got to go to the McDonald's. And if you don't, I'm going to, you know, rip your eyeballs out, you know. And I, you know, I sick, so sick, and yet eating the things that were making me sick and just not able to take care of the kids, having to have my mother-in-law come help out because I was constantly ill. I was the one that was, uh, couldn't stand to be around my sister-in-law and, and you know, nagging and just dysfunctional on up and down, up and down, all over the place. How did he stick with it? How did he stay? Why did he stay? And I, as I see here, uh, it in desperation, we have gotten tight ourselves the drunk to end all drunks. The unexpected result was that our husbands seemed to like it. And then when when our spouses respond, then it's like, well, yeah, you're no better than me. And then I find myself gloating over that and then turning the tables and thinking, poor me, poor me, look at what I have to put up with. And this is, this is what happens in, in my life. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Sharon. Anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? Star one to unmute. It's Monica. Monica, please go ahead. Good morning, Leah. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, all. My name is Monica. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Um, I'm just thinking about this paragraph here and thinking, you know, this sure sounds like hell. Hell for everybody here. Everybody involved in the family here, the little children, the wives, the husband, everybody, whoever's involved with us. You know, what hell we put them through. And isn't this the opposite here of happy, joyous, and free? For sure, for sure. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Monica. 
Anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? This is Kim. Kim, thank you. Go ahead. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, my fellows. My name is Kim, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. You know, it just amazes me the depth and weight of these paragraphs because I often think I'm not going to have anything to share because I've never been married. So I've never caused any damage in this way. But then when we you, when you study it like this, it just amazes me. This isn't just about for the wise. This is for anyone who has dared to be a part of my life. You know, and so it says they struck the children, kicked out door panels, smashed treasured crockery, and ripped the keys out of pianos. You know, and I remember... Sometime in my early 20s, uh, one of my friends was over, and they mentioned something about how wonderful I was, and that I was, you know, I just, I never even seemed to have any kind of anger. I was so calm, and I remember the look of shock on my father's face because I was a raging lunatic at home. You know, I would be nice to the friends who I wanted to manipulate, and you know, to make sure that they liked me. But I would come home, and I kicked in a door trying to get to my brother. I was so angry. There's a there's a hole in the wall that my dad had to patch up because I kicked the wall because I was so angry. You know, after dinner, we used to circulate who did the dishes, and every time it was my time, it was a blow-up. It was a blow-up. Why am I always doing it? Why aren't my brothers doing it? But it was because I was scared. I didn't know how to clean up the dishes without eating everybody's leftovers. So I knew if it was my night for the dishes, I was going to wind up binging. So the only way I knew to handle it was I would just start screaming and yelling, and I was so unpredictable. You know, that, that I was worse, I think, when I was dieting. I was worse when I was abstinent because at least in the food, I got a little bit of relief. I got a little bit of eating comfort. But if I was on a diet, if I was trying to not eat, I was in restless, irritable, and discontent. And that was an awful place to be around me. So I was so unpredictable, you know, kicked out the door panels. How extreme. I've done it. Smashed treasures crockery. You know, I, I remember breaking things against the wall because I didn't know how to handle life. Life was difficult, and I didn't know how to handle it. So, you know, in desperation, we even got tight ourselves, the drunk to end all drunks. The unexpected result was that our husbands seemed to like it. You know, I used to bully people into binging with me. I didn't want to be alone. Come on, binge with me. Don't be a weenie. Don't be a wuss. You know, in college, you're just getting, trying to get people so I could feel normal again. You know, so I like to think, well, you know, I've never married, so this doesn't apply to me. But the fact is, anyone who dared to try to get close to me was at risk of the wrath that I felt because I didn't understand what this disease was. I didn't even understand I was sick, and I was just lashing out and lashing out and lashing out, and it wasn't consistent. So you never knew who was going to walk in that door today. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. Anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? This is Helena. May I share? Of Hi, course, this Helena. is Judy. Helena Hi. and then Judy. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Hi, I am struck by the paragraph, the sentence, next day they would be themselves again and we would forgive and try to forget. And then it describes what we are like uh, in the throes of our addiction. I did not know who I was. They would be themselves again, but I did not know who I was. And for me, just as was shared by Kim, I was sometimes angry, violent. I had no idea how to handle life. And for me, I would reach for the food also 
to calm me down. And again, how inconsistent. I remember my mother telling me she wanted me to come with her to an event, and I refused. I pitched a fit. I, I, I did not know how to handle life. She left without me, and I started to eat, emptying out the cupboards in the house, and she, after half an hour or so, came back to see if I had changed my mind, and yes, I had. I went meek as a lamb. Talk about who was the real Helena. You know, was it the violent, angry person? Was it the person that sedated herself with food? Was it the person that I used to say, you want to know what my willpower is like? Get between me and my food, and you'll see what my willpower is like. I have a lot of willpower to eat, but I have no willpower to stop eating, and I have a lot of anger, and I do not know how to deal with it. And this paragraph is just telling us how crazy it is. I've heard it said that one alcoholic can keep 20 people around them busy and how inconsistent and how troubling and how difficult trying to explain, yes, I do love you, even though I'm acting out in this way, I'm so sorry. Times of remorse, times of anger, times of I don't care, I'm doing it this way, whatever you say, times of sedating myself with food. The level that my family, the level of love that my family's had for me to still hang in, not necessarily happily, not saying that there weren't many arguments and fights, but I really, really appreciate. And when I come clean, instead of starting to look at how my family has caused problems for me, I need to be willing to make amends. Pass. Thank you. Judy. Yes, good morning, Leia. Good morning, Visions for You. I'm Judy F., Recovered Compulsive Overeater from Massachusetts. It's really good to be in this place and seeing the truth. And I was always the one, um, I didn't have, you know, a husband or family, uh, children, but the way I have to be out of denial and admit that I wreak havoc. And I did it in a very subtle way. And it was very manipulative through my depression. And what came out in this reading was we got tight ourselves. And I remember my boyfriend, to get me out of this depression, every night he'd say, okay, where do you want to go to dinner tonight? And that was, I I was so unresponsive to him. But that would get me in a good mood for a little bit. After binging all day, waiting for him, because this disease took me to a place where I lost my job and, and how he had to figure out how it was his job to get me out of my depression because that's how I set it up. So there's so many ways I hurt my family and, and people that really cared about me. Most of all, my isolation and shutting them out and making them having to figure out how to make me better. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Judy. Anyone else? Star one to unmute. This is Leal comments on this paragraph. We have tried to hold love of our children for their father. We have told small tots that father was sick, which was much nearer the truth, and we realized um, here we have, I mean, of course, we're in Chapter 8 to Wives, so, you know, the spouses are telling on the disease here. 
um, because reality is that this disease of alcoholism and our disease of compulsive overeating engulfs all whose lives touch the sufferers. You know, perhaps if you're sitting here this morning as we're studying this and you're saying, you know, by golly, these alcoholics are tough. You know, that doesn't happen in the world of compulsive overeating. You know, this only happens to an alcoholic. But that's not so. (laughs) That's not so. I speak from personal experience. Um, It says they struck the children, kicked out door panels, smashed treasured crockery, and ripped the keys out of the piano. Sounds quite uh, vicious and violent. Uh, It goes on to say, in the midst of such pandemonium, you know, pandemonium means hellish uproar. You know, to think that this is only uh, related to alcoholism is erroneous. You know, because compulsive overeaters, I'm one, by the way. Let me introduce myself. My name's Leigh, and I'm a real compulsive overeater, and perhaps you are too. Um, compulsive overeaters engage in conflicts with family, with children, with spouses. I know, I'm a real compulsive overeater, and I've worked with real compulsive overeaters for 26 years. I know we have also, a, uh, <laughs> you know, a tendency to be verbally or physically abusive to other people. We engage in self-destructive behavior. We are, at times, unable to provide physically, emotionally for children provide safety needs for children, provide meals for children, provide proper bedtime for children, provide proper support and encouragement and love that children need, provide emotional intimacy to husbands, provide physical intimacy to husbands, spouses, We contemplate suicide. We drive while binging, putting our own health at risk as well as any passengers in the car. We lose interest in in activities and hobbies. We get ourselves into embarrassing situations with family and with friends. We have difficulty keeping appointments. We have difficulty keeping commitments. Sounds like pandemonium. Sounds like the results of disease, doesn't it? What the steps do is provide stability. What the steps do is put us back together the way God intended us to be. That's the transformation that's possible because of the program of recovery. We're transformed from the pandemonium that you read about in this paragraph to a life that's happy, joyous, and free, not only for ourselves, but for the, gives an opportunity for those involved with us to also live happily. And with that, I pass. Anyone else like to comment on this paragraph before we move on? Hi, my name is Laura Lynn. I'd like to share. Of course. My name is Laura Lynn. I'm a compulsive overeater. And um, for the, I just felt moved to just share something that I haven't ever. I got in a terrible car accident and totaled my car um, several years ago now and uh, was working on another 12-step program and was successfully abstaining from those substances, but I was uh, still into the food and call it distracted driving or whatever you want, but 
the the primary reason why I got into that accident is because I was paying attention to this thing that I was eating, a uh, sugary thing, and and I don't know. I just I just felt like it is easy to say, well, the alcoholics or the drug addicts, yeah, they have all that chaos, but it's true. I mean, I've seen people, you know, balancing the soda between their legs and eating the fast food and paying attention to the kids, and and I'm no different. You know, I did that, totaled my car over eating some sugar. So, thanks. Thank you. Anyone else? Hi, this is Emily Ruth Nasher. Of course. Thank you. Um, I can very much relate to this idea of pandemonium in my life. And um, when I do not turn my will and my life over in my God, um, that is when I feel unstable and I feel uh, just like I am lost and wandering and, and just grasping at straws. And that's usually when I do create chaos and pandemonium. Um, and I am a high school English teacher. And at one point, my, um, my principal actually made the analogy to me that you know, I am flying a plane right now. I'm flying a plane with these children and their lives and their education in my hands. And if I am not stable and I am not well, I can't be flying a plane. You know, I every single day my importance and my responsibility is to these children and it's to teaching them to the best of my ability. And if I am if I am in some sort of fog because I am not consciously in contact with my higher power then I'm putting them at risk, I'm putting myself at risk, and these children deserve stability, they deserve a good education, they deserve a teacher who um, is aware and having their best interest every single day. Um, And that extends to all aspects of my life. My roommate deserves that, my fiancé deserves that, my family deserves that, Um, and I deserve that. I think a lot of the time, one of the main reasons that I... Um, I I get so afraid and don't turn my will and my life over is because I don't feel like I deserve it. I don't feel like I, I say to myself, who am I? Who am I to live in the grace of God all the time? That just doesn't seem realistic. It doesn't seem possible. It doesn't seem fair, you know, and I am doing myself a disservice and I'm I'm doing my higher power a disservice. I mean, if my higher power wants me to live in his grace, which I I truly believe that my God wants me to be a happy and healthy person of service. And so if I am doing something to block that, that's not fair of me. I'm not being fair to myself. I'm not being fair to the people around me. And I want to be a fair and balanced person. I, I have that willingness. It's just a matter of listening to the direction of my higher power. I don't need to, you know, figure out any answers. I don't need to come up with them by myself. I just need to listen. I just need to listen and follow what I believe that my higher power is telling me to do. So with that, I'm going to pass. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else before we move on to the next paragraph? Uh, this is Debbie. Sorry. Debbie, go ahead. Nice Debbie, go ahead. Um, I just wanted to share a quick thing that happened to me in my life. I worked at a college, and I used to call in all the time because um, I wasn't sick with the flu. I didn't have a cold. I had um, a binge for the night with my food, and I just couldn't 
cope and get up and go to work. And one time I went to work and I had a wicked um, hangover from the food. And I got in a really bad fight with a girl that I worked with, and she reported it. And um, I almost lost my job um, just from, you know, I just told him I had a bad hair day. I didn't tell him that I had hangovers from food. They would have thought, what? But anyway, I, I just wanted to share that um, my food binge um, almost cost me a job um, just from being violent, from just being up, you know, just just drunk on food. Okay, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Thank you. Let's move on to the next paragraph, please, with Michelle. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, Leah and Vision for you. This is Michelle, recovered compulsive overeater. Perhaps at this point we got a divorce and took the children home to father and mother. Then we were severely criticized by our husband's parents for desertion. Usually we did not leave. We stayed on and on. We finally sought employment ourselves as destitution faced us and our families. Um, Okay, so this this paragraph is um, painting a picture of more and more destruction going on in the home um, that's caused by the alcoholic mind, the compulsive overeater mind, the behavior, the actions. And, um, you know, I I thought it was interesting that, um, because this paragraph I really relate to, and it talks about perhaps at this point we got a divorce. And I'm thinking about, you know, the hard place that that the family is in. Um, They're between a rock and a hard place. You know, here's the, the description, the paragraph above you know, who would want to live in a life like that? Who would want to live in a household like that? Um, but then there's what choices do they have? Okay, I could leave. Um, and, you know, the disease, my disease, um, is just like a disease of alcoholism. It affects um, the family. They call it a family disease. My disease has an effect on other people. Uh, affects their sanity, too. And couldn't see that... Um, they needed to leave, but then if they did, there was they were faced with the guilt. What would their spouse's parents say about them? They couldn't face the criticism. Um, it, they were between a rock and a hard place, and so, so they usually did not leave. Oh, so sorry. Oh, apologize. And um, it reminds me that um, I was so blinded to my own behavior, I didn't see that I was causing this destruction. And, you know, I was, I was causing that separation, that break in the, in the relationship with my family, that divorce, that separation. I was putting up walls, pushing people away, pushing everyone away. My friends, uh, my higher power, they were there staying on, hanging on there for me, hoping and praying, but I was pushing them away because I was blinded. I, I didn't see the destruction. How could, I'm sure they're wondering, how could you not see this? And, um, you know, I even had the, um, looking back, I call it audacity, to go see a counselor because I wanted the divorce. Um, things were not going my way. You know, why were, why were you not, why were you being so sullen? Why were you being um, so sad? Why weren't we having fun in our marriage anymore? And I was blaming other people. I, I wanted to get out. I didn't see that I, with my disease and in my disease and illness, I was causing this, um, this destruction. And as I was reading this this morning, it reminded me of the paragraph at the bottom of page 82. Um, You know, we're familiar with that paragraph about the tornado that roars through the lives of others. 
but then it says, hearts are broken. Sweet relationships are dead. Affections have been uprooted. Um, isn't that what was happening? Sweet relationships are dead. You know, the sweet relationship that I had with my spouse when we first got married, we were there for each other. Um, but then as this disease progressed, as my disease progressed, and again, it talks about the selfishness, inconsiderate habits that kept the home in turmoil. That, you know, this disease, my selfishness, my self-centeredness, it was all about me. That's what kept this home. That's what was breaking hearts. That's what uprooted, you know, what, you know, what visuals those are with that, that tornado and what it's doing to these relationships in my life. And I, I didn't see it. You know, I'm like the man that, you know, comes out of the cellar. I don't see the destruction. It's like when I put my food down, you know, it's like, you know, I think that being abstinence enough, I'm, I still don't see the destruction. And that's why I need these steps. That's why I need a sponsor to take me through these steps, especially steps four and five, um, because I'm, I'm still blinded. You know, it talks, you know, you know sobriety is not enough. Abstinence is not enough. I see the wind quit blowing. I'm feeling a little, um, you know, I don't have the physical craving. And, um, hey, guys, I'm, I'm going to start getting better here. What's going on? Why aren't, you know, why aren't things looking better? I don't see the destruction that I have caused. Um, in these relationships, and um, so you know, I, you know. In fact, if I don't keep spiritually fit, um, and I I can go back, those, those behaviors can pop up. That selfishness, self-centeredness. Um, I you know I need to stay in fit spiritual condition. I need to have that relationship with my higher power, and only then, um, with working these steps, can is there hope that these relationships will be restored. And I, I say today, by the grace of God, in this program. Um, you know, we just celebrated 38 years of marriage, and um, I'm grateful now because I can see, I can see, um, and only because of these steps and the grace of God um, has that happened for me. But yes, that pandemonium, um, the divorce, the separation, the death of a sweet, the near death of a sweet relationship. So any ambers, any little sparks that were left in that, de- you know, in that destruction. Um, was fanned, was fanned by the love of God, the grace of God. It came from working these steps, and and that faith, that little spark that was still there, barely alive in that relationship, because of working these steps and being able to um, have the guidance of a recovered sponsor, was fanned back into a beautiful flame of love. And um, I love my husband more today than the first day I met him. And um, he wants to be with me, and I want to be with him. But it's only by the grace of this program, because I, too, was right there where this paragraph is describing. With that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? Hi, this is Kate. Can I share? Yes. Hi. Um what I was thinking about whenever... Yes, my name is Sherry. Sherry, Um, hold on a minute. Kate Kate is speaking right now. Thank you. Go ahead. Uh, So what I was thinking about whenever I was talking about a family member, you know, divorcing and and, and leaving because of the disease, um, I was thinking about when I first got into recovery and how I entered with a family member. And um, at first what had to happen was that she had to separate from me 
with love because I couldn't get out of the disease. I continued to binge and for her self-preservation, for herself, um, for her programming connection, you know, she had to say to me, like, I need, I need to find my own path with my own higher power right now. And that, um, experience at the time, just like, oh my gosh, it felt like it, it was a divorce, you know, it felt like, it felt like this, this death of myself. And, uh, thank God today, you know, that experience prompted me to work my program and my recovery and get to a place where now that relationship is more God-centered and more healthy than it had been in our entire lives. And, um, you know, today we can just be in recovery together rather than be in the disease together. And that was just not a reality for for my entire life. So I'm really grateful to this program. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you. Was it Sherry who wanted to speak? Yes, yes. Go ahead. Uh, Yes, my name is Sherry, and I'm a compulsive overeater. And I I just want to say that, oh, I'm so grateful that I called in this morning. I've heard so many wonderful things so far. And um, I want to say that I've been abstinent now since, I don't know the exact date, but it's last March. And, of course, I lost weight, et cetera. But, you know, so much more important than that is the fact that for the first time in my life, I have a clarity and an understanding. I'm able to take responsibility for who I am and the life that I lead um, in a way that I've never been able to before. Um, you know, people always told me when you're in the food, you just don't have any clarity, you can't see yourself. And, of course, I nodded my head and I said, yes, I, I, I understand, you're right, you're right. But... I never understood that in the way I understand it now. And this is the first time in over over 10 years um, that I've had a stretch of abstinence like this this long. And it's changed my life in so many ways. My relationship with my husband is so much better. And, you know, I, I just, I related to so many of the things I just heard, you know. And for me, it's been about taking responsibility for myself and who I am, the choices I make, the life that I live. Um, I blamed my husband for so many things. I was unhappy uh, with life and this and that, and I was never able to look at myself, never able to say, hey, what's my part in this? And, uh, you know, it, it's amazing. It's it's as though, uh, as, as, as I, you read in one of the, I don't know where it says it in the book somewhere, like a veil of tears or something was lifted from me. Um, And I see myself. I see life. Um, It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing, and it's only due to the grace of God. And this program, I see food for the insidious, insidious evil that it is. You know, it, it just affected everything in my life, and I never really believed it or understood it. And, uh, you know, just for the day, I value my abstinence so highly. Uh, it means more to me than anything, really, as as I am able to see myself and my life in different ways. 
and to understand that I too was the selfish one, the self-centered one. Um, it's just changed everything. And I, I'm so, so, so grateful uh, just for this day, one day at a time. I'm grateful that I have much stronger spiritual connection with my higher power. And uh, on that note, I'll pass for today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Anyone else like to comment on what was read? This is Jody in California. Jody, go ahead. Thank you. I, too, have been abstinent since March and um, working these steps to the very best of my ability for over 20 years. And I've been married uh, 29. And my abstinence seems to be resulting in divorce. And I'm getting messages from my higher power that this is actually God's will. It's hard because I feel like if I could just have worked these steps harder, if I could just have been less self-centered, maybe it could have been saved. But I truly have worked these steps. I've gotten over my resentment. And my husband can't accept my recovery. Ever since I found these rooms, it has put, seems to have put a rift between us. And um, much as I have tried, it just has not worked. I have prayed. I have turned my will and my life over. At times, that has seemed to bring us together. But now, ultimately, he is seeking a divorce. And um, the doors are opening for that to happen. And I can only trust that much as, you know, it is sad, it is bad. And um, I have to go through it for all I know. Divorce and separation might make some other change that will bring us back together. I don't know. I've seen that happen. But so far, um, we are we are being led to separate. And I just wanted to say that so that maybe some other people out there are, are experiencing something similar. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know the big picture. I don't know the big picture, and I just continue one day at a time to be abstinent, turn my will and my life over to the care of God, to see my husband for the child of God that he is, and pray for his well-being as well as my own without any resentment. And only his well-being and my own at heart. Anyway, with that, I'll pass, and thank you all for the, for the meeting and the topic. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jody. My name is Leah. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Of course, we're in Chapter 8 here to the wives. So uh, 
you know, this is allowing spouses to tell on the disease here, bringing the disease a little bit out of the closet. If it's uncomfortable, um, <laughs> perhaps uh, we relate in to the turmoil and the chaos and the pandemonium that compulsive overeating does cause. You know, if, if anything, these paragraphs um, perhaps strip away some of the denial that compulsive overeaters can have. You know, they point the finger at the alcoholic saying the alcoholic causes this turmoil, but not so with the compulsive overeater. Uh, it says, perhaps at this point we got a divorce and took the children home to father and mother. Um you know, spouses have to put up with a lot. I know in uh, my early marriage there were talks of divorce. Uh, we had no kids um, at that point. And certainly my husband's parents, you know, were suggesting him, uh, you know, <coughs> suggesting to him that option because who wants to live with this kind of pandemonium, with this kind of hellish uproar going on. Again, if you're a compulsive overeater and you think that these kind of uh, tales only occur under the rooftops of alcoholics, I say look again. Uh, you know, um, through my own history and working with others, I know the family problems, you know, uh, that occur, that compulsive overeating interferes with relationships. Compulsive overeating can cause uh, verbal abuse. Compulsive overeaters are prone to emotional abuse. Compulsive overeaters have been known to um, physically abuse other people. Um, you know, they withdraw from their family members. There's no sense of, of you know, being part of a family. Um, you know, they withdraw from family activities. They separate from their spouses and children. Yes, divorce is oftentimes occurring because of the pandemonium. So, again, let's utilize this chapter and this text to see the realities of our behavior, how our unmanageability begets unmanageability, that, that um, this, this life of ours that is deteriorating um, also brings down the lives of those who are involved with us. And with that, I pass. Let's move on to the next paragraph, please, with Carol P. Good morning. Carol P. here, compulsive overeater. We began to ask medical advice as the sprees got closer together. The alarming physical and mental symptoms, the deepening pall of remorse, depression, and inferiority that settled down on our loved ones, these things terrified and distracted us. As animals on a treadmill, we have patiently and wearily climbed, falling back in exhaustion after each futile effort to reach solid ground. Most of us have entered the final stage with its commitment to health resorts, sanitariums, hospitals, and jails. Sometimes there were screaming delirium and insanity. Death was often near. And I'd just like to briefly comment here oh wow what insanity i lived in that chapter um just the progression of the disease um and you know where it talks about as animals on a treadmill uh you know falling back in exhaustion it was like shoveling snow in a blizzard uh and, and until i got sick and tired of being sick and tired i couldn't do anything but i you know i just kept trying and uh you know 
how many times I really woke up. You know, I would wake up and be surprised that I woke up, but, uh, you know, I did feel with what was happening with my body that, you know, death was near. Then I was, you know, I, I did begin to ask medical advice. Uh, at this point, there was no asking God, um, but it was a start asking uh, for medical advice. Um, but it was uh, a terrible place to be in, but I had to be there to get to the other side. With that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you very much, Carol. Anyone like to comment on this paragraph? Hi, Melanie. Melanie, go ahead. Hi, good morning, Leah. Good morning, everyone. My name is Melanie, recovered compulsive overeater, and I look at this, and I, I see just as we've gone along reading here, it's really telling a story about true lives, the things that have gone on here, and that I can get a moment here and identify in, yet what my my spirit and my heart and my mind is doing here as we're reading these things, and even down to this point, is that it's a progression of things. We've gone from describing, you know, the horrible things, and I mentioned some that I had experienced yesterday, and now we're here, we've gotten so desperate that I'm uh, going to be willing to go and take this secret a bit out of the closet from my house and go and ask for help outside. So that's an interesting thing to see it go from here to there because, you know, it's like a, excuse me, I inhale quickly. Um, it's like um, I liken it to a, a frog in a, in a kettle of, of water, in cool water, you know, and you gradually turn the heat up and everybody is just quite blinded by it, by it all and they don't even realize sometimes it's happening. That was certainly the case in my house, yet when it got to this point, things were getting really bad. When I'm looking at you know, contacting a doctor, things are really, really beyond. It's getting to that point of desperation like it was when I came to that place of surrendering to um, the uh, program of recovery here for my own compulsive overeating. It's, and it's quite, it's quite exciting in that particular way that, um, that now I want to see that this chapter really is the, telling, telling it in segments. This is the, where it was. This is what happens, and then this is what it's going to be like next. It really does restore. This is about hope. This is about finding a, a God greater than ourselves, not to necessarily for me to commiserate in what it was that I did, but to, to really take a peek at what this is in here for. It's to say that miracles are happening. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Melanie, and thank you to everyone who participated this morning. Thank you to our readers and everyone who attended. We will now close with a reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. Kim, will you please read a vision for you? Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.